0: Good evening and welcome. I'm Scott Warner and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And while we're in Chicago, we're going to New York City tonight to visit our speaker. And um, I'm gonna introduce our speaker tonight, Peter Hoffman. Um, Peter is the author of this book. uh, It's What's Good, a Memoir in 14 Ingredients. And with a foreword by Adam Gopnik, and Peter, just quickly, I, I bring it to you. I know Adam Gopnik is quite a big Kahuna. Uh, what, he's an editor. What, what's he the editor of? Or, he's a he's a regular writer at the New Yorker magazine. Yeah, because I know he's quite quite illustrious. But this is Peter's book. What's good? A memoir in fourteen ingredients, and there it is. And uh, cap, oh, there's a, a link. In our notice that appeared on our website, if you'd care to order a signed copy of the book, you can just click on the link. Again, go to culinaryhistorians.org and look for the program notice, and it will be in there. So on to our speaker tonight, Peter Hoffman, Chef Peter Hoffman, is the curious cook's cook. As the former chef and owner of Savoy and Black 40 restaurants in Manhattan, he trailblazed farm-to-table cooking in, in New York City. His opinion pieces have been published in The New York Times, Edible Manhattan, and Food and Wine. And Peter serves on the boards of the Green Market and Chef's Collaborative and is a Slow Food New York City Snail Blazer Award recipient. And on most market days, he can be found on his bicycle foraging Union Square Green Market. It's not too far from your home, right? Um, yep, very far at all. And, and he's looked looks nice to have a green market right, right in the middle of Manhattan. And he's looking for the best in seasonal ingredients and partaking in its village green community life. And without further ado, live from New York, it's <laughs> Peter Hoffman.
1: Uh, that's great, Scott. Uh, maybe someday I'll be there on uh, <clears throat> Saturday Night Live. That would be fun. <laughs> um, um, thrilled to be with all of you tonight. I'm not sure whether with the spotlighting and all that, that uh, you got to see the cover, uh, but there it is. What's good, a memoir and 14 ingredients, beautiful cover shot by uh, Quentin Bacon, uh, shoots lots of Ina Garten cookbooks and food and wine magazine items. And we riffed on a uh, a painting by a 17th century, Italian female painter named uh, Gabriella Garzoni and uh, of a platter of fava beans and and, and other vegetables and did a shoot um, live in the middle of the winter. Um, and since Kathy, you know, you were talking about um, heirloom apples earlier. These are um, one of my favorite apples that I write about in the apple chapter called Ashmead's Kernel. Um, and, um, anyway, the book, uh, if I can just sort of describe the book a little bit to to you all, it's uh, it says it's a memoir, which it is. Um, but it toggles back and forth between sort of the essays or chapters about the mechanics of of being in the restaurant business and the mechanics of having become a chef and moving up in kitchens and and all of that. and what it was like to run a farm to table restaurant in New York city with uh, a seasonal progression through the farmer's market over the course of the years. And so those are, those chapters are ingredient based and really sort of wanting to provide people with the the backstory on, on some ingredients and what I love about them so much and what makes their flavor so extraordinary and, just some sort of cultural stories uh, about the ingredients that will enrich in your cooking um, if nothing else, or just appreciation of them when you're eating them. So, um, you know, I, the, so the two arcs of my life and a year in the market are, are traveling together. The first chapters are about how I became a cook or how, where I grew up in New Jersey and, you um, my, where my interest in food began. And then, uh, and the ingredient chapters then are based on, um, uh, they, they they start in the, the, the root cellar because that's where we are at the beginning of the winter. Spring hasn't quite come to New York yet. And so there's a chapter about leeks and potatoes. And um, that chapter is kind of interesting to me, um, and it tells a little bit of a botanical, the botanical backstory there is the difference between annuals, biennials, and perennials. Potatoes being the, even though we dig them up and uh, and at the end of the, the growing season, potatoes are in fact perennials. So there's certain what's interesting about that chapter is I, I kind of outline how annuals, which are the grains, um, the grasses are, um, the ingredients that were grown in Europe and, and, and earlier in, in the Middle East, um, 10,000 years ago, something like that. And, um, have always been, um, uh, at risk of, of the vagaries of the weather so that um, you know in in the Old Testament when people talk about or you know in the Passover story about the the plagues of, of locusts and drought and hail, all these weather uh, items that that deeply affect what the harvest is going to be um, and and put, you know, uh, not only the, the the crop at risk, but but life at at risk, and so that annuals are kind of a boom and bust crop, and uh, it really wasn't, and so that famine uh, in in Europe well into the um, uh, it, it, through the Middle Ages and early into the Industrial Age. Was still a regular occurrence. There wasn't a steady food supply in Europe until the introduction of the perennial, being the potato, from South America. Um, so that was really transformative um, in that. And um, and then the the uh, the chapter the the part that talks about the biennials, of course, are all kinds of things that that we eat. That again, we may not think of them as biennials, but um, carrots and beets and lettuces and all those items that um uh they're growing rapidly in 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 their first year of life and then start to say okay i have i'm gonna take all this energy that i've gathered from photosynthesis by creating leaves leaves that are able to be solar panels and draw this energy and create uh, storage of that energy and so that's the carrot or the beet, um, or the parsnip. Um, and, uh, and so we like that as, as humans, we like the fact that they're storing all that energy for what the plant hopes is going to be for the second year. But in fact, we yank it, uh, in the fall or earlier when they are heading towards maturity. Some people actually, um, Keep their carrots or their parsnips in the in the soil uh, into the winter as a as a place of storage, and uh, and then will then after the thaw uh, begin and they begin to cook uh, they begin to grow again. Then yank them um, to stop them so that 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 they've kind of done all their growing, all their storage of of, of calories as they as they can along the way. So that's sort of one of the, one of the first ingredient chapters. Um, I'm going to uh, read to you a little bit from a chapter that's much later in the book. Um, And um, it's about peppers. And um, it's in, there's a particular, there's a, sorry for the background noise there. my wife is starting to prepare dinner. Um, so peppers, um, there's a particular pepper at the market that I love and seek out. It's, it's a, it's a Grenada pepper, um, as in seed that comes from the Grenadine islands was brought by, uh, Caribbean women given to a farmer, uh, that, uh, lives in and uh, and raises his vegetables in Pennsylvania. And um, so I'm going to read a little bit about that and um, share some information. Again, these are uh, are both that whole long explanation about annuals, biennials and perennials was um, from an ingredient chapter, but the the other ones are sort of more about the restaurant business. But let me begin here talking about peppers. Um, Pepper nomenclature is confusing and Christopher Columbus responsible for so much cross-cultural misunderstandings and misappropriation is to blame for this one too. In pursuit of a westward oceanic route to the East, Columbus's sights were set on India, its spices, and in particular, the highly prized black peppercorn. Thinking he had made it to Asia, Columbus called the Caribbean islands, the West Indies. Peppercorns, the berries of Piper nigrum is a climbing vine limited to hot regions near the equator were called pimento in Spanish. When Columbus was introduced to chili peppers in the Americas he conflated them with peppercorns and called them pimento as well, even though they're botanically unrelated. These peppers, part of the nightshade family of tomatoes and eggplants are known as the capsicums. Most of the capsicums that we're familiar with are of the species capsicum annum, jalapenos, bell peppers, poblanos, Hungarian wax peppers, Shishitoes and Padrones. Tim Eckerton of Eckerton Farm, that's my farmer in Pennsylvania, was for decades the sole Union Square farmer growing an array of another species, Capsicum Chinens. The more exotic, flavorful and incendiary peppers, and specifically my object of desire, the Grenada seasoning pepper. The Grenada seasoning pepper is named after its namesake island in the Windward Islands of the Lesser Antilles, close to the South American mainland. The Chinens peppers developed in the Amazon basin and radiated from there into the Southern islands of the Caribbean. It is bright yellow with the occasional orange blush, thin skinned and rarely bigger than a walnut. Its sensual folds and ripples characterize all of the chinen's peppers prompting the Caribbean people to name one of its hotter kin, the Scotch Bonnet, after the Highlander wool hat known for its multiple pleats and pom-pom tuft. Crack one open and the fragrance is intriguing, full of floral and citrusy flavors accompanied by a nasal tease, a tingling suggestion of an underlying arsenal of heat. Grenadas have all the fragrance of habaneros and scotch bonnets and only a fraction of their heat. Another variety of the chinens is known as seven pot pepper because it packs so much heat and flavor, it is only discarded after offering its powers to multiple stews. The capsicums are a miraculous group of plants. Once the Colombian exchange, That's the less pejorative term for the botanical and zoological sharing that commenced after Columbus, so-called discovered the Western hemisphere began. Portuguese and Spanish explorers transported peppers all across the globe where they easily adapted to many diverse climates and were embraced by the peoples of Asia, Africa, and most of Europe. The botanical success of the capsicums is the result of a combination of factors. They grow prodigiously, can be easily selected and bred to express different traits, traits, and probably paramount is their taste, attractive, powerful flavors that come in small packages. Other new world discoveries, beans, potatoes, (laughs) corn are more nutritionally are more nutritionally significant, which might explain why they became caloric staples for millions of people worldwide. The tomato, another star ingredient of the Americas, took several centuries to become overwhelmingly the dominant vegetable in worldwide production. But no other ingredients spread as rapidly and became foundational to as many cuisines as the capsicum peppers their appeal is not nutritional, but rather their abundance of flavor. Pinch for pinch, no other plant group comes close to capsicums seasoning power, which explains uh, why they were so quickly embraced in Asia, Africa, and play a central role in Spanish, German, and Middle Eastern cuisines. And of course, in the traditional pepper rich cuisines of Mexico, the Caribbean, and the Amazon basin, The peppers were appreciated long before colonial forces began spreading their genetics around the world, and an ecological form of imperialism. It's kind of incredible to imagine what Hungarian, Sichuan, Hunan, or even Indian food tasted like before the 16th century without access to this crucial ingredient in their cuisines. If every painter, is in some ways a self-portrait of the painter, then every pepper selected to reflect the climate and taste preferences of a culture is a self-portrait of the people breeding it as well. Adapting to so many different palates and desires, there is a vast trove of shapes, colors, flavors, thicknesses, and heat levels. Grenadines breed them for their seasoning, Middle Easterners for their stuffing capacities, and Hungarians for their qualities dried and ground into powder. Peppers are a culinary antidote to scarcity and people's experience of poverty. Carbohydrates, the major caloric fuel in many diets tend to be neutral in flavor. Some might even call them bland. And animal proteins are dear, whether they are hard to come by or expensive to purchase. Peppers, however, dry extremely well, offering a year round unrefrigerated dose of big flavor and bring life and interest to meals that might otherwise be boring. What is it that we humans love so much about peppers? What explains our fascination and for some obsession? Much of it is about the heat. Black peppercorns are pungent and aromatic but they aren't actually hot in the way that capsicums create the sensation of heat on our tongues. Stimulation from a pepper tells our brain that we're touching something hot. The nervous system sensation of burning is real, no different than if we ate a spoonful of extremely hot soup. It's a wake up call that something is happening, a prodding that reminds us to be in the present. We are alive, we are awake. People the world over love that stimulation, that provocation, if you will, of eating hot sauce or jalapeno poppers and experiencing the edginess, the border between the humdrum and the vibrant. It's no different than the jolt I get from jumping into a, the frigid pool at the Russian Turkish baths where I go for a schvitz, or charging into a lake on a cool summer morning. When daily routines become dulcetory, we use peppers to tingle our skin, our body's edge in order to re-experience the joy of living. Social scientists call this pursuit of exhilaration, benign masochism or constrained risk when we ignore the message of the physical sensation and enjoy the experience because in this case, we know we aren't actually getting burned. I don't agree with the masochism theory. The endorphin rush that comes with a sweaty forehead and a runny nose is an experience of heightened awareness. Deeming it thrill-seek, thrill-seeking belittles the feeling of euphoric in indestructibility that we get. The way we meet the challenge of a flaming tongue can serve as a metaphor for acting boldly in the world. Mao Zedong said, the food of the revolutionary is the red pepper. Those who cannot endure red peppers are also unable to fight. May his culinary insight have longer resonance than his political beliefs. So that's a little bit of the chapter. I go on to talk about um, uh, Scoville heat units and uh, and come back to what I love and and cook with the grenade of pepper. I'm not sure whether there are people growing it uh, there in in Chicago at the uh, Lincoln Park Market, which is uh, uh, such a wonderful farmers market. But in the book, there's a, a there's a recipe, there are a few recipes uh, in the book, mostly associated with the ingredients. Um, and this one is a very simple, sort of sauteing the, the peppers um, in onions and garlic with some allspice and bay leaf, sort of thinking about the Caribbean and some fresh thyme, adding in some vinegar and then um, pureeing it so that you get a, a, a vinaigrette and finishing it with, with good olive oil. Um, so that's, uh, as I said, that's that's uh, a little bit of uh, what I talk about in in that ingredient uh, chapter. Um, I told you that that uh, I begin by talking about leeks and potatoes. I move on to actually talking about the very first uh, spring awakening not that it comes into the market at that moment but there's a chapter about maple syrup which is sort of when the trees are are waking up and and beginning to um you know take all that sugar that's been stored in the roots during the the winter or stored during the summer and fall when all the photosynthesis is happening and then uh the sugar starting to come back up into the tree and uh you know before to provide energy so that the buds can unfurl with new solar panels to begin the photosynthesis uh, process in the spring again. Um, And then I talk about um, some fishes I do, there's a chapter about shrimp and sort of the journey that I went through um, um, and um, uh, uh, a chapter on skate a fish that I love and and very much but then talking about strawberries and garlic and rosemary um tomatoes sort of high summer and then into stone fruits and the peppers and ending the last two chapters are apples and pears and kale and radicchio Um, so that's the that's that's the ingredient uh thread of the book and um and then I, again, sort of go through my life, sort of how I became a cook, how I became a chef, and um, then it w- what it was like to run the restaurant. Um, I think I'll stop there for the moment. Um, if that's uh, a, a place that, that, Scott, you'd like to um, jump in and, and uh, talk about some of the things that, that you were seeing in the book, um, between uh what our uh uh internet capacity is here, puts me in a in a in a more public space, but I, I think we've finished with uh the uh the pot banging. So um my, my apologies for that.
0: Yeah, but but will we get to taste some of the food since we, I can smell it now. And, yeah, and right. we, yeah. we, 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 off, we always have samples at our meetings. So when, why don't we have some samples at the zoom meeting, but yeah, oh, well, yep. you're the chef and your wife cooks for you, which seems only fair, but is there, is there any competition between you as to who's the better chef?
1: Uh, well, Susan is the pastry chef in the family. Uh, there's a chapter um, in the chapter about stone fruit. I actually share her recipe um, uh, for making pie dough and making pie um, because she's really a master at that. And uh, what's interesting about that chapter too, is is that I sort of compare my cooking style, uh, with hers, she and it sort of played out in the kitchen as well. She didn't like. Uh, she liked to be in the kitchen, quiet in the morning, not too many people around, uh, limited number of variables. I'm sort of more happy to be in the in the thrum uh, and like calling tickets and talking to waiters and a customer sticks their head in the kitchen and calling out orders and and cooking at the same time and sort of what that difference is in our lifestyle and cooking style so um she's a great cook um but uh of limited number of dishes by her own choice um and uh but a great pastry chef and so and i'm always the guy who's cooking something new and never cooking the same thing twice and even when she Asks, you know, says, "Oh, that was delicious. Can we have it again?" Um, I make an attempt, but um, it, it's uh, I'm I'm always just sort of a, a rolling stone, so.
0: So it, a, it doesn't sound like there's too many cooks in the kitchen, then, so that that, no. that you compliment each
1: other. Yeah no, that's we do, it, and um, um, it, it, it's a nice balance that that
0: we've uh, found. Uh, what about your background? Uh, what How did you decide to become a chef? What got you into food?
1: Well, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I mean, I liked food and uh, and my parents brought me into the city, into New York City. I grew up in the suburbs, and they were excited by a lot of the different ethnic cuisines that were here, and so I ate, Armenian food and Hungarian section of of the far upper East side, um, things like that. But um, I hadn't quite, I was, I was interested in backpacking and, and the environment. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to turn that into a career. Um, I thought maybe I would go into forestry or something like that, but then, I saw, there was an article that uh, the New York Times Magazine section ran on Paul Bocuse. uh, And I saw that and I saw this photograph of this man holding vegetables, standing in the farmer's market and realized that this was kind of the the beautiful balance between art and science, between uh, not about, having needing to be um, intellectually challenged and at the same time being physical in, in the work. And um, I've then read the article and oddly enough, I had no idea uh, who wrote the article until um, I was doing research for the book um, a couple of years ago and um, and oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Um, oh, oh uh, Waverly Root. Uh, it was the, the the author. Now he of course wrote the book about the cuisines of um, the food of France and the food of Italy. Wonderful, wonderful, important books for me when I first went to France in the 80s. Um, because he divided France up into uh, the geographic areas of people who cook with duck or goose fat and cook with butter, and then down in the South cook with olive oil. Sort of a, a great concept or construct, even if it wasn't perfect, but it was a way of thinking about um, the cuisines of, of, of France, the regional cuisines of France. And, um, but anyway, he's the one who, who wrote that article about Bocuse, and um, and if I could, I'll just, there are two kind of, uh, quotations that are the epigrams, epigraphs for the book. Uh, and the first one is, is Bocuse, And he says in that article, first rate raw materials are the very foundation of good cooking. Give the greatest cook in the world second rate materials, and the best he can produce from them is second rate food. And I really took that to heart. Um, and so that my, my pursuit of the farmer's market, uh, is one part of that, that journey, but I really sort of felt, uh, that fundamentally that the chef's job begins not in the kitchen, but begins outside the kitchen in the sourcing of the ingredients. And so I've had bokus uh, looking over my shoulder for, uh, 40 plus years now. So that's a little bit about how I got inspired to be a cook.
0: And finally, um, what you, well, you, you get a lot of your food from farmer's markets. Is that right? Or you get from the farmers who bring to the farmer's markets? Is that right?
1: Well, when I was running the restaurants, um, there were, uh, farmers who delivered to us, they had worked that out. Then there were people who were actually um, running businesses where they were um, uh, gathering from uh, farmers upstate and uh, and and then putting them on a single truck and bringing them down. But a lot of where I got, I mean, a lot of ingredients still, we would purchase um, at the farmer's market at Union Square in uh, in Manhattan and part of what the, 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 strength of that also was not just the availability and the diversity, but that, um, uh, that when you're talking to the grower, that there's a tremendous amount to be learned. And I recommend that to all of you to, um, go there to the green city market if you don't already or other farmer's markets. And and the beauty is over time that you uh, converse with the farmer, talk about what they're growing, what it tasted like, what you did with it, why this week was worse than last week's or better. um, and, And you begin to really get in touch with the fact that These are not extruded, manufactured items that we're feeding ourselves with, but rather um, uh, changing, living, uh, beautiful things. Um, Which if you'll allow me, I'll read the other quotation at the front of the book, uh, which is from Wendell Berry, uh, a man I discovered, Sort of when I was well along as a as a line cook and and but hadn't really found my direction as as in terms of um, the ethics of what I was trying to do as a cook and and reading this this is the end of um or almost the end of the essay that's called I um, um, uh, forget what it's called the um The art, the, um, uh, it'll come to me, but anyway, here it is. Wendell Berry eating with the fullest pleasure pleasure. That is, that does, that does not depend pleasure. That is, that does not depend on ignorance is perhaps the profoundest enactment of our connection with the world in this pleasure we experience and celebrate our dependence and gratitude for we are living from the mystery, from creatures we did not make and powers we cannot comprehend. So there it is. I mean, it's sort of, as I said, you know, if you give yourself over to seasonality, to what the farmers are raising, to the fact that one week it's here and you think you're going to have it next week and then it's gone. And so then you have to alter your, your menu because the string beans are just, they're finished. They're gone. Or, um, what you thought was going to be the last tomato salad, um, last week was actually the last tomato salad, uh, kind of, kind of thing. And, um, so I, I love letting the, the, the miracle, of existence drive my cooking and therefore um, be part of my daily existence. And, and in that way, the, my cooking is a piece of my religion, right? So that it's sort of me getting in touch with um, transience and the universe and um, and the miracle of life. So um, that's a long answer to your question,
0: Scott, but. Uh, it was a delicious answer, so and very savory too. So, thank you. And Kathy, uh, would you turn on your charm? Uh, chatty Kathy oh. will now handle the chat questions. So, uh, Kathy, do your thing. Thanks.
2: I, I, I'm not the one laughing. It's my mother in the background. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, um, I chef uh, pastry chef Gail Gand is online tonight and she inquired about that gigantic Madeline plaque on the wall behind you.
1: Uh-huh. Where did you get it? Yeah, the, the, Kathy picked up on it straight away as well when we were on a Zoom call the other day. Um, well, Gail, that was given to me. So it came from Paris. Um, it was given to me by Noel Comess. I don't know if you know him, but he started Tomcat Bakery, one of the very first artisanal bread bakeries in this country and certainly in New York. Um, and there's a full view of it. And um, uh, it's, forget what it is, it's 17 by uh, seven or some kind of uh, uh, odd number, but, uh, but there it is, uh, a, a great Madeleine, you know, professional bakery um, mold. Right. Can you, you, leave, can you leave it to me and you're well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and say hi to Nell for me. <laughs>
0: I, will. I will. I will.
2: Could you talk more about apples and pears? Both have wide varieties. And how does Chef Peter categorize these differences when selecting them for cooking?
1: Well, uh, sure. Um, you know, the um the chapter the chapter opens by talking about the fact that that this moment in time right where we are in september heading into october when there's still warm days and i can still wear shorts like i did today um, i don't want to taste the uh the early apples i kind of resist i don't you know i there's a there's a way that i just don't want to acknowledge that the summer's over, and so I'm still looking for peaches. I'm working with plums, and um, and again, I won't even dive into the apples until I've really worked my way through the pears because um, they're never going to keep as well as the apples do. Um, and uh, and so I I kind of come come early October. I start working. The pears that are in the market really hard, um, and then it's only sort of like when I've really put on a sweater um, and it's a and a brisk day that um, that I say okay I'm I'm going to eat uh, I'm going to eat the first apple and you know there's something I mean I I love apples totally I mean I'm going to eat them for for months until we get to rhubarb and strawberries um, of course with some citrus fruit mixed in but um, Uh, but you know, that they're, uh, I, I, I love the fact that they're hard, that, that they, you kind of, when you bite into them, that, that crack that, that cleaves the world from one side to the other, um, is so different as a sensual experience than where I'm still trying to be, which is in the world of peaches and plums, which are juicy and sensuous and dripping and you know all all of that. So I come to the I come to the apples late. Um I'm particularly fond of uh some of the russeted apples as opposed to some of the glossier ones. I, I tend to be kind of an heirloom kind of guy. Um the Ashmead's kernel that's on the, the cover of the book uh is probably my favorite. Um, I also like the Roxbury Russet and the Golden Russet. Um, they all seem to have wonderfully whiny, uh, rich flavors. Um, the acidities are always high, which is really important to me in an apple so that you get the balance. It's not just about sweetness. Um, the modern apples, I mean, there's been a lot of really uh, excellent breeding that, that's gone on. Um, uh, but sometimes the flavor profiles, even though they've passed, um, lots of focus groups, I find that they're, uh, they've gone for crisp and crunch, uh, and then sort of a lot of the, the acidity is still there sometimes, but it's kind of candy sweetness. And so I tend not to like some of the more um, modern varieties. The problem with the with the russeted apples is that um, that russeted skin transpires uh, the, the 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 moisture more rapidly, and so they they tend not to keep as well um, uh, because that 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 skin is more porous, and so they they dry out sooner um, and 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 get softer sooner. Another favorite of mine that's a that's an heirloom here in New York is the Newtown Pippin. Newtown, of course, is uh, uh, a part of Queens, and this was a seedling plant that uh, uh, somebody propagated, and uh, and everybody decided they liked it, including Thomas Jefferson, who then um, took them over to Paris uh, when he was ambassador, um, and that. Uh, that apple remains with us today. The probably essentially the same apple that people were eating in in the 18th century. So those are some of my favorites.
2: Okay, uh, please tell us about where you grew up in New Jersey, your early food memories, and what. Jersey brings to the culinary world apart from its proximity to New York and to some degree, Philadelphia. And that comes from somebody who is from New Jersey.
1: Right. Well, um, I grew up in Burton County just over the George Washington bridge it was a brick bedroom community with, uh, lots of, uh, parents commuting into the city to work. That's not what my parents did. Um, they, um, my dad was a dentist and my mom was a teacher, uh, early education, early childhood education specialist. And um, and so they they stayed put, um, but we, in, even in my town, which they're, they're long gone now, but when I was a kid, there were still some farms in our town. We would um, go just, down the road to buy tomatoes and corn, and and uh, and the stand, uh, the the field of the field of corn was right behind the stand, and we would enter from one side, and the and the kids who were picking the the corn and then putting them in burlap sacks would bring them down to the back side of the stand, and uh, and dump it right into the um, into an open window. And then we would grab it um, from the from the wood stands. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it was perfect placement. Um, you know, I had the country to um, explore and go hiking and and uh, and, uh, and and journey into. But on the weekends or on certain evenings, my parents would take me into New York City, and um, and so I got to experience. Um, the the glory and the diversity of of food in New York. So I feel like I had the best of both worlds by being in the suburbs. My one of my sisters doesn't feel that way at all. She hated, couldn't wait to get out of the suburbs um, and get out of um, get out of town. Um, but I I had a different experience with it. Um, you know. There's a lot of good food being grown even now um, uh, in Jersey and and in Bergen County. Um, Some of the farmers who, uh, there aren't aren't too many of them, they're fewer than there were 30, 40 years ago when I first started shopping at the green market, but even in Bergen County, which is that most populous um, northeast corner of the state, um, closest to New York City, there there are still farmers who come to the market um, from there.
2: I think that concludes our questions unless somebody pulled something I didn't
0: see. Scott, I turn it over to you. You know what? I think we've, we've just, uh, had the, uh, the, uh, what do they call the last course? Or is there a course after dessert? Peter, is there something after dessert that's served? I know in in Europe it would be the salad, I guess, but. let's
1: Let's see if there's something there, you know, um, One of the things about the, um, the restaurant, uh, that I'll tell you about Savoy was the restaurant that I ran for 26 years. And, um, uh, it was, it was a restaurant that always tried to find a balance between being, um, um, innovative, but without being twee or fussy, that was important. Um, to us, it was not an expensive restaurant and, um, uh, and, and, and so that, that, that the project was, and and again, sort of the seasonality was something that was driving it forward all the time so that the menu changed. Um, the only thing that remained the same was, was something that became our signature dish, which is called salt, salt crust duck. Um, and, um, but we would always change the set on it. Um, and um, so that it was both sort of a signature dish and a, and a seasonal one as well. And um, so in the, I write a chapter about um, uh, what we did called, the, the, that I ran a, a dinner series where I brought in guest speakers the very first guest speaker was Ray Sokoloff. Uh, some of you may know of him or uh, he used to write, um, at one point he was writing in uh, Natural History magazine about um, the uh, sort of cultural ethnic food experiences. Oh, he's, he's been a speaker for us too. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah he's, a, he's a great guy um, and uh, taught me a lot and one night we were, doing a dinner um, was not the dinner series hadn't started yet. And he stood up spontaneously and started talking about the history of one of the dishes that I was serving. And um, my sister leaned over and said, you know, you should, you should do this. You should make a a program out of it. Um, And so we did. And actually um, Ray was the first speaker. He had just come out with a book um, that is called, why we eat, what we eat, and it was about new world, old world um, uh, uh, exchange of ingredients. So um, the so that, that in that chapter, um, I, I start by uh, talking about different kinds of restaurants and different ways that menus are constructed, and I say. We go to some restaurants precisely because the menu never changes. The local Greek diner's all-day offerings of Western omelets, lamb moussaka, tuna melts, and a joyously greasy burger, or the French bistro for soup all onion, uh, onion gratine, roast chicken, steak frites, and tartatin. or to a steakhouse for its New York strip, creamed spinach and wedge salad of iceberg lettuce, hothouse tomatoes, and Roquefort dressing. These restaurants are selling dependability and predictability, the ability to ever satisfy a specific hankering and a certain sentimentality. Their promise to never take those dishes off the menu means that we can reenact important sense memories when we choose. Some restaurants actually structurally build change into their menus. The, if it's Tuesday, it must be bouillabaisse, weekly rotation found in brasseries, strikes the balance between predictability and creativity. Menus printed daily or a server's recitation of nightly specials also tries to convey, communicate vibrancy, but they offer little insight into the motivation of the chefs. Then there are restaurants that we go to expressly in search of something new. As diners, we offer ourselves over to the restaurant or to the chef to show us their stuff whether it's inspired by seasonal availability, a traditional cuisine, or from the interior of someone's imagination. For cooks, our sources of inspiration can come from a variety of means, dining in other restaurants, reading cookbooks, following Instagram posts of other chefs, reworking the classics, visiting farmers markets, and of course, traveling. So I then go on to talk about the um, the dinner series and some of the wonderful events that we did. They evolved over time. I got uh, I started doing poetry dinners. I got Galway um uh, the poet, to come read, and we did a dinner of autumn poetry, and uh, then Charles Simic, who's still alive, and reading his very sensual poems. Um, I got Stephen Jay Gould to come to the restaurant and we did a dinner um, that was about um, invertebrates. And uh, that was, had a disastrous moment that I won't take the time to tell you about tonight, but is in the book. And, uh, and then I did, um, when Michael Pollan came out with um, The Botany of Desire, He and I had been doing dinners prior to that, but we did um, a great series of dinners there over the Botany of Desire. Hey, hey, uh,
2: Peter. I don't mean to interrupt you, but what are you eating for dinner tonight? There's a number of people curious about this because we've been listening to the (laughs) pounding and the the trading and and all this good
1: stuff. So, uh, well, I think it's uh, some version of... a, a. a lot of garlic because my wife considers, and this is in the book too, my wife considers garlic to be a vegetable. Um, and, uh, but garlic sauteed with kale. Um, uh, oh, so she's and, been beating up the kale, right? She, no, she's been working hard on the um, getting the, um, uh, the, 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 the butt ends of Parmesan grated. And, um, and then, yes. And then, you know, Perfectly sauteed kale in the in the olive oil with nicely uh, golden chips of garlic.
2: So uh, Gail Gand uh, jumped in. I don't really understand the question. Maybe she'll add to it, but it was about the p- petty fours. Gail,
1: or maybe she was answering somebody else. Yeah, yeah it was. It was because Scott said, "What comes after dessert?" he was trying to petit fours on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Like he wanted one more, he wanted one more course after dessert. Yeah. So here's my, here's the end of my, my final pedophore. So that I was sort of right saying, why do we go to restaurants and for different kinds of experiences? And then I was telling you some of the dinners that we did. Um, and, and, um, so, um, over nearly 20 years and 100 special dinners, we pushed ourselves as cooks and restaurateurs to develop new skills or work with new ingredients. Customers benefited from our growth. We incorporated particularly delicious preparations from the dinners into our repertoire. Paula Wolfert's nut picatas as sauce and broth thickeners, Fergus Henderson's trotter gear and Coleman Andrews's Ligurian recipe for salsa Moreau, the fresh fava bean and mint mash come to mind. <laughs> Less tangible though, were all the ways that the dinners built an embodied community. At the conclusion of most evenings, I bring out all the cooks to take a bow and experience the heartfelt appreciation of the diners in sustained applause far more visceral than servers coming into the kitchen and telling cooks, the folks on table 24 are really loving their meal. By participating in the menu development and execution of meals based on literature, poetry and politics, I impressed upon the kitchen crew that while cooking is a craft, it is also an art. Not in a highbrow kind of way that can lead to twee food, but art as one of the many creative expressions of our culture. Our interplay with writers, poets, and thinkers gave even greater weight to the value of our work. And by value, I mean something far greater than our day-to-day restaurant transactional exchange of food for dollars. We go to some restaurants because the menu never changes, to others because the menu always changes, and then there are restaurants we go to because we are changed by the menu. So that's Very my- Very poetic. Yeah, that's my petit four.
2: So uh, somebody asked, what will you be doing at Telesian
1: So no, at, I, at Taliesin- um, Sorry. I, that's okay. <laughs> um, at telesian I'm going to, you know, it's such an extraordinarily beautiful place if you haven't been. Um, and you know what's interesting is is that on one hand, that Frank Lloyd Wright, in my opinion, you know, as an one of as an architect who completely embodied showing respect for the environment and building into the landscape and and becoming part of the landscape. And so in that way, he's uh, doesn't have a lot of ego, and yet the guy was a complete egomaniac. Um, and uh, so I'm going to reference the the uh, that that part of him that really is about respect for the landscape and talk about that in terms of um, our cooking and our food and our food production in this in our world um, and and less about his about the egotistical side of food production and wanting to control. Um, control climate and control the universe. So that's sort of what I'm going to be um, talking about um, back and forth. And I'm doing that with um, a guy named Keith Keenley, um, uh, who has written about that region um, a bunch and with, uh, with Odessa Piper moderating. So that should be a fun, fun evening. And I'll be signing books and, uh, and Odessa is making some, uh, uh, past hors d'oeuvres and, and things like that.
0: Well, that that's actually going to be in Frank Lloyd Wright's home, Tally Us, and then is that right? Well, or it's going to be gonna at gonna the visitor center nearby, it's going to be
1: at the River Cafe, the River View Cafe, okay. uh, which is the building he designed. Um, but it's not at his home, yeah.
0: And it's just down the road from his home and it overlooks the Wisconsin River, yes, and it's it beautiful. And Odessa said, Do you want to come up for it? I can't, because otherwise I'd be there with you. So, folks, it's it's a real experience. It's in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And uh if if you go there, uh based on hearing what I've just said, I'll enjoy it vicariously. So uh, uh and, anyway.
1: and come up and say hello if you do, um, since I really appreciate everybody's uh attention tonight and forbearance. Um, but I hope that uh both what I read from the book and and um, uh, and spoke about the book that that you'll um, you'll check it out. You can buy it as um, uh, as is in your link from McNally Jackson here in Soho, and and if you want, I can inscribe it. They send me emails every time uh, someone buys a book and wants it inscribed, and so I can uh, write something to you if if you were if you so desire and. Um, Uh, Gail, the, the, the event at Taliesin is on Saturday, October 9th. Yeah. And I will be, and again, I, I know you have it in, in the, uh, uh, the, the email that you probably got, but I'll be in Chicago at Lula Cafe on, um, Wednesday, October 6th, if you want to, again, if you want to come see me in person and um, and you can buy the book there and I'll be reading some other sections from it but um, it'll be fun to um, to meet all of you so thank you all
0: and thank you so much and thank you for your talk and your petty for yeah right and there you have it the um... <laughs> yes yeah great so. Good night, everybody. Thank you.
1: Good night, Scott. Good night, Kathy. Thank you for supporting me so well. And uh, to everybody who joined the call and and the Zoom experience, thanks
0: so much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Bye-bye. Good night.